Amen. Hosea chapter 8, starting at verse 1. The Lord's word says, put the horn to your mouth. One like an eagle comes against the house of the Lord because they transgress my covenant and rebel against my law. Israel cries out to me, my God, we know you. Israel has rejected what is good, so an enemy will pursue him. They've installed kings, but not through me. They've appointed leaders, but without my approval. They make their silver and gold into idols for themselves for their own destruction. Your calf idol is rejected, Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For this thing is from Israel. A craftsman made it, and it is not God. The calf of Samaria will be smashed to bits. Indeed, they sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. There is no standing grain. What sprouts fails to yield flour. Even if they did, foreigners would swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. Now they are among the nations like discarded pottery. pottery. For they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey going off on its own. Ephraim is paid for love. Even though they hire lovers among the nations, I will now round them up and they will begin to decrease in number until the burden of the king and leaders. When Ephraim multiplied his altars for sin, they became his altars for sinning. Though I were to write out for him 10,000 points of my instruction, they would be regarded as something strange. Though they offer sacrificial gifts and eat the flesh, the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their guilt and punish their sins. They will return to Egypt. Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. Judah has also multiplied fortified cities. So I will send fire on their cities and it will consume their citadels. Israel, do not rejoice jubilantly as the nations do. For you have acted promiscuously, leaving your God. You love the wages of a prostitute on every grain threshing floor. Threshing floor and wine vat will not sustain them and the new wine will fail them. They will not stay in the land of the Lord. Instead, Ephraim will return to Egypt and they will eat unclean food in Assyria. They will not pour out their wine offerings to the Lord and their sacrifices will not please him. Their food will be like the bread of mourners. All who eat it become defiled for their bread will be for their appetites alone. It will not enter the house of the Lord. What will you do on a festival day? on the day of the Lord's feast. For even if they flee from devastation, Egypt will gather them and Memphis will bury them. Thistles will take possession of their precious silver. Thorns will invade their tents. The days of punishment have come. The days of retribution have come. Let Israel recognize it. The prophet is a fool and the inspired man is insane. So Israel says, because of the magnitude of their iniquity and hostility. Ephraim's watchman is with my God. Yet the prophet encounters a bird trap on all his pathways. Hostility is in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity and he will punish their sins. I discovered Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers, the first fruit of the fig tree in its first season. But they went to Baal Peor, consecrated themselves to shame and became abhorrent like the thing they loved. Ephraim's glory will fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception, even if they raise children. I will bereave them of each one. Yes, woe to them when I depart from them. I've seen Ephraim like Tyre planted in a meadow, so so Ephraim will bring out his children to the executioner. Give them, Lord. What should you give? Give them a womb that miscarries and breasts that are dry. All their evil appears at Gilgal, for there I began to hate them. I will drive them from my house because of their evil, wicked actions. I will no longer love them. All their leaders are rebellious. Ephraim is struck down the withered. They cannot bear fruit. Even if they bear children, I will kill the precious offspring of their wombs. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They will become wanderers among the nations. Israel is a lush vine. It yields fruit for itself. The more his fruit increased, the more his, the more his fruit increased, the more he increased the altars. 
The better his land produced, the better they made the sacred pillars. Their hearts are devious. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and demolish their sacred pillars. In fact, they are now saying, we have no king. If we do not fear the Lord, what can a king do for us? They speak mere words, taking oaths while making covenants. So lawsuits break out like poisonous weeds in the furrows of a field. The residents of Samaria will have anxiety over the the Bethaven. Indeed, its idolatrous priests rejoiced over it. The people will mourn over it, over its glory. It was certainly going to exile. Uh, the calf itself will be taken to Assyria as an offering to the great king. Ephraim will experience shame. Ephraim will be ashamed of its counsel. Samaria's king will disappear like foam on the surface of the water. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, will be destroyed. Thorns and thistles will overtake, will grow over their altars. They will say to the mountains, cover us. And to the hills, fall on us. Israel, you have sinned since the days of Gibeah. They have taken their stand there. Will not war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? I will discipline them at my discretion. Nations will be gathered against them to put them in bondage for their double iniquity. Ephraim is a well-trained calf that loves to thresh, but I will place a yoke on her fine neck. I will harness Ephraim. Judah will plow. Jacob will do the final plowing. Sow righteousness for yourselves and reap faithful love. Break up your unplowed ground. It is time to seek the Lord until he comes and sends righteousness on you like rain. You have plowed wickedness and reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies. Because you have trusted in your own way and in your large number of soldiers, the roar of battle will rise against your people and all your fortifications will be demolished in a day of war like Shalman's destruction of Beth Arbel. Mothers will be dashed to pieces along with their children. So it will be done to you, Bethel, because of your extreme evil. At dawn, the king of Israel will be totally destroyed. This is the word of the Lord. You can take your seats and I ask that you join me for another moment of prayer. God, yet again, we are confronted through your word with the reality of your extreme hatred for sin. And we're also confronted through your word with the reality of how sin merits punishment and judgment. And yet we're also confronted through your word with the reality that you and your kindness have made it possible for us to be spared this judgment. God, we thank you that even uh, to a people that would never fully know of and see Christ on this side of heaven, you love hints of a forthcoming promise and a forthcoming fulfilled promise to send righteousness, <laughs> to send a sufficient righteousness to, to even cover all of our unrighteousness of the past. God, we thank you that we can Rejoice in this hint of a promise that you left and that we can rejoice in knowing how it is fulfilled in fullness. We give you thanks for Christ Jesus today. We give you thanks for the fact that he's done for us what we could never do for ourselves. For the fact that he endured punishment so that we could be granted restoration. Father, we give you thanks for the fact that he makes genuine knowledge of you possible. Where we may pursue a shallow surface level knowledge of you for the sake of our own self-centered, self-absorbed, selfish interest. 
Christ helps us to see your glory for what it is so that we pursue knowledge of you because you are the God of the universe. So we thank you for him and the sight that he's given. I pray that it would increase all the more as we hear your word be preached this morning. I got to pray and ask that you would help me to preach it clearly and in a way that is compelling. I need your strength. I need grace from you. I pray that you give me clarity in my thoughts, that you give me clarity in my speech, that you help me to be sensitive to uh, the leadership and guidance of your Holy Spirit, that you use me as a tool to, to do in the lives of your people what it is that you intend to do, and even as a tool to to save and win someone new to your people today. I pray that if, if, if there's anyone in the room who doesn't know you, that, that, that doesn't have genuine knowledge of, of who you are and, and intimate relational knowledge of you through Christ, God, I pray that the gospel as it's preached today would, would show them the truth and how this is found. That they be convicted over their sin. That your Holy Spirit would lead them to repent, to respond to what Christ has done with faith. So we need you for all of this to take place. Nothing I do in my own strength is of lasting value. So I depend wholeheartedly on you this morning. I pray that you'd help me to preach for your glory and for our good. It is, again, for your glory, with dependence upon your spirit, and in the name of your son that I pray. Amen. Well, friends, if uh, you've been with us over the last few weeks, uh, you know we've been doing a, a sequential study through the book of Hosea. Uh, we're walking through the book from beginning to end over the course of about 10 weeks. It's typical for us here at Pioneer. Uh, we're committed to what we would call expositional preaching. Uh, this means that uh, we want to take God's word and have the sermons in our gatherings be primarily about exposing what God's word says. Uh, that way, God's voice is the dominant, loudest, most formative voice in the entire gathering. And we believe that one of the most effective ways to do expositional preaching is to take one of the books from within God's word and walk through that book week by week in the order that it appears in Scripture. So by those means, today we've come to the eighth chapter of the book of Hosea. Hosea is a book of prophecy that God spoke to his people during the mid to late 1700 or 700 BC years. God's people at this time were acting in unfaithful rebellion and sin against him. They were growing to a state of sinfulness that was almost all-consuming of them. Last week I mentioned that chapters 6 and 7 had somewhat of a, a tonal change from the chapters that preceded them. Uh, chapters 1 through 5, there were many statements that had somewhat of a jarring tone, right? Like through the prophet Hosea, God said several things that seemed almost as if he was yelling to, to kind of jar and grab the attention of the people that he was addressing. Well, then we got to a certain point in chapter 6, and it seemed that God toned it down a bit. Uh, he stopped yelling, and, and he started to carry this tone that was more so a, con a tone of, of a kind of head-shaking disappointment. He started to wonder what he was going to do with these people who wouldn't snap out of their sinful ways no matter what he seemed to say to them or warn them of. But what we'll notice today is that the tone of Hosea will look somewhat like a V. Like if it was to be placed on a chart or, 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 or form a line graph, it looks somewhat like a V. In the first parts of the book, you see God speak in this tone that, that yells and jars and provokes to grab the people's attention, but they didn't listen. Then in the middle of the book, in, in, in last week's chapters, God seems to stop yelling. Uh, he's apparently fed up and disappointed. But this morning's chapters carry a tone of God yelling again. And here's the thing. 
At this point, Hosea's prophetic ministry has, has gone on long enough that God actually does have many of the people's attention. They've noticed that many of the blessings that God was lavishing upon them have stopped. And, and, and the false gods that they've been worshiping to, to try to get these blessings, they obviously aren't providing for them anymore. So now the one true God, who was actually providing the blessings all along, the one true God has their attention again, and they start to respond to God with desire for him to bless them in the ways that he's done before. The provisions were gone. They were being punished for their waywardness. So they decide to try God and see if he pushed the blessing button again to give them what they want. The thing is, God doesn't do what they hope. These chapters are going to show us that instead of pushing the blessing button, God flips the sanction switch and he allows the people to suffer the consequences for their actions. We see this with the very first verse of chapter eight. God says to the people, put the ram's horn to your mouth. Uh, the ancient Israelites would use ram's horns in ways that resembled the use of a trumpet. Uh, they would blow into it, and the sound that came out was a signal to all the people that they were about to go to war. So there's this, this, this kind of war cry. There's this, this call for war that God is issuing to the people. And verse 1 tells us that in this war, there will be one like an eagle to come against the house of the Lord. That means against his very own people. Uh, eagles are understood to, to be some of the fiercest, uh, most respected, most skilled predatory birds in the entire world. Like an eagle doesn't tend to miss when they decide that they want to attack and, and capture their prey. And God says in verse one that he himself was going to send one like an eagle, attack and capture his people. This was taking place during a day of, of, of war. This is a day and age where, where, where wars were were extremely frequent and, and prevalent in society. A nation's whole identity was wrapped up in how powerful their military was and whether or not they could fend off enemy nations that might come to attack them. Well, God had enabled Israel to grow strong and have a powerful military up to this point, but now he says that he's going to act within this cultural norm by sending one who's more powerful than them to overtake them in war. Now, why would God allow his people to be overtaken? Well, verse one, because his people have transgressed his covenant, so they've been unfaithful to him. They've not lived the way they're called to live as his covenant people. They've forsaken their special relationship with him, and they've also rebelled against his law, which means they've acted according to what they think is best instead of what God has told them to do. And it's worth noting here, friends, that as we continue to walk through this book of Hosea, we should remember that the prophecies these people receive actually end up happening. Uh, these aren't empty promises that God makes for the sake of lip service. Hosea prophesied that they would be taken captive, that their idols would be, uh, would be busted, that, that foreign nations would come and cause many of their sinful lives to end. Well, if you go read the, the book of 2 Kings, you'll see these historical records where God actually allowed the people to be captured, overtaken, and exiled by the nation of Assyria. And so the prophecies that we see in this book, some of them have already taken place, and many of them were fulfilled during the lifetimes of the very people who heard them. And this says to us today that God means business, that God hates and actually punishes sin, that we who claim to be God's people better pay attention to what God's word says and live according to it, that God isn't one of lip service and that God means what he says and he should be taken seriously when he says so. But Israel obviously wasn't taking God seriously enough. That's why they eventually experienced the tragic fulfillment of all of these prophecies. But now in verse two, we do see that they cry out to God, right? It says they cry out and they say to him, we know you, God. And this brings us to the first of just three simple 
two-part statements that I want to lay before us this morning. I say two-part on purpose. These are two-part statements that have the word but in them. People tend to say that when you use the word but, it negates everything that you said before it. Well, not necessarily with these statements. In these statements, I'm using the word but to clarify and build upon what comes before. So these are two-part statements. Part one is important. The word but comes after part one. Then part two helps us to further understand and apply what part one has already made, aware, made us aware of. They're simple statements, but it's critical for us to understand that part two builds onto part one if we want to apply these statements correctly. Are ready for statement number one? It's simply this. The knowledge of God saves, but it must be genuine. The knowledge of God saves, but if it's going to save, it must be genuine knowledge. The reason this is an important statement for us to learn from is because we don't want to end up like Israel is in verse 2. They cry out to God and claim that they know him, right? But remember, this comes after they've been hearing God's prophecy. Uh, they heard many of God's warnings and commands from Hosea for what was likely a couple of decades at this point. So many years of hearing, but ignoring God's prophecy until things got too tough. Uh, we've come through the first seven chapters already. We know that, that many things have been said which should have made them wake up and, 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 and respond with repentance a long time ago. But they didn't. God issued warnings through Hosea. Uh, they ignored the warnings and continued to live their own way. And so God withheld provision and he cut off their blessings. And then because he withheld provision and, and, and because he cut off blessing and, and withheld all good things from them, life got tough. And so what does Israel do now that things are tough? It says they cry out. My God, we know you. And I notice this, this cry isn't arbitrary. Like they, they didn't just pull this out of thin air. This is a very specific cry. Like this has been somewhat of, of the central command and invitation that God has been giving all throughout Hosea's prophecy. And what were they told in, in chapter 2, verse 20? You will know the Lord. What was the rebuke of chapter 4, verse 1? There is no truth, no faithful love, and no knowledge of God in the land. That same chapter, just a few verses later, God rebuked the priest, right? My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will reject you from serving as my priest. Chapter 5, verse 4, what did it say? Their actions do not allow them to return to their God, for a spirit of promiscuity is among them, and they do not know the Lord. In chapter 6, verse 3, Hosea issues a call. What was it? Let's strive to know the Lord. Then in that same chapter, God tells the people of his desire for them. He says, I desire faithful love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Later in chapter 13, we hadn't gotten there yet, but, but God's going to remind them of why their sinfulness was nonsense. You know what he says? I've been the Lord, your God, ever since the land of Egypt. You know, no God but me and no savior exists besides me. So after, after having ignored this command and invitation all this time, when things get tough, the people cry out and they say, my God, we know you. But do they actually know God? Is this genuine knowledge of God? I don't believe they do. I don't believe it is. God says in verse 3 that they've rejected what's good. This means that they've rejected him by rejecting what he had called them to. Here's a quick little nugget for you. You can't know God without knowing the ways of God. Amen? You cannot know God without knowing the ways of God. God in his, in his personhood, in, in his being, he is completely consistent and in oneness with his character and commands and virtues. They go hand in hand. 
So you can't know God without knowing the ways of God. To, to know and, and live by anything other than the commands of God to, or to take on and, and reflect anything other than the character and virtue of God is to, through your actions, make the proclamation that you actually don't know God. Romans 5.10 says that we, before Christ, were enemies of God. James 4.4 4 says that to be give, given over to worldliness is to be at enmity with God. Or well, why were we enemies? Why is worldliness enmity against God? Because without Jesus showing us godly virtue and with the world influence, influencing us toward their own or even our own virtue, we live contrary to God's virtue and God's way, which makes us like enemies who don't know him. Because without Jesus showing us this, we're, we're blind. We can't know God if we don't look through Christ and see the character of God. And so to use that old axiom, the knowledge of God requires that it be his way or the highway. There ain't no in between. And Israel seems to have chosen the highway. In verse four, God starts to, to kind of lay out a list to show the different ways that Israel had rejected him. Uh, verse four says uh, they installed kings and appointed leaders, but without guidance from God. Uh, this was one of the, the, the worst things they could have done, friends. Uh, they, as a people group, uh, they were set apart to display God's glory and character to the world around them. Uh, but here they are selecting leaders for themselves without consulting God for his input. That was a terrible way for them to select leaders. And I just want to give a, 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 a two-year early notice before the 2024 presidential election that this would also be a terrible way for us to select leaders as well. So you can kind of, you can grab this little nugget here and put it in your pocket for two years and then pull it out when the election gets here in 2024. Hear me. America's not the group of people that God has set apart to glorify himself through. That now is the New Testament church. It's the people in this room, the people that are gathered all across the world today hearing the, the gospel of Christ be preached. And we most certainly want to seek God's wisdom and guidance for appointing leaders in the church, but I don't think we're too tempted to, to forget that and do otherwise when it comes to the church. But we must also remember that as citizens of America, God has given us the right and responsibility to take the glory and grace that we know of through the church and to try to introduce it to the world. One small way that we get to do this in America is with political votes. So what am I getting at with this? Here's my point. When it comes to politics, we want to be educated and aware of systems and policies and all of that stuff when we're preparing to vote about anything. So do your research, know your stuff, be prepared. But my point is that in doing all of that, we cannot forget to also pray. What God says about Israel in verse four teaches us that the best way we as Christians can participate in politics is not through educated gauging, nor is it through extemporaneous guessing. We as Christians best participate in politics by engaging with God. That's the way we do it. I'll start beating that drum again in about a year and a half, but today we got to move on. May the Lord make us more prayerful than anything else in the way we think about politics. In the rest of verse four, uh, we see that Israel took their silver and gold and made it into idols for themselves for their own destruction, God says. And he mentions a specific idol. Uh, in First and Second Kings, you can read about how Jeroboam, who uh, was one of the initial kings in Israel, after the, 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 the northern tribes split from the southern tribes, uh, he had the, these people to, uh, to make these, these calf idols. There were these, these statues that he made the people worship because he didn't want them to go uh, in the south, where the temple was to go and worship God at the temple because going to the temple in the South that they might've reunited with the Southern people and, and rebelled against him as their King. 
So Jeroboam's selfishness, his, his self-absorbed, self-preserving fears caused him to lead the people into idol worship, and it spread from that point forward. Uh, there were idols everywhere. But this particular calf idol was especially prized by Israel. A calf was believed to, to represent strength and fertility. Uh, so the people worshipped this idol with the understanding that it somehow made them strong and fertile. Well, God wasn't going to allow that to go on. He says his anger burned against them because they had taken gold and silver that he provided them and made it into this idolatrous statue that they worshipped instead of him. And God was right to have his anger burned about this. Like they took his provisions the stuff that he provided them with, and they made it into an idol. But friends, I wonder how often God's people do that today. I mean, might there be some good, gracious provision from God that you are taking and misusing in idolatry instead of properly using in worship? Is there some provision that has become an idol in your life or just isn't used in the worshipful ways that God would intend for you to use it? Might it be a relationship? whether that be with a friend or a romantic relationship. It might be comfort. God has given you a pretty comfortable life and you refuse to worship him in ways that cause that comfort to be risked. Could it be truth? Uh, maybe you're so obsessed with truth that you care more about defending it than you do the worshiping the one who is the source of it. Might it be some talent that you have, some gift that, that God has given you that you misuse for your own glory instead of his. Maybe it's your money, your job that provides your money. Maybe it's the season of life you're in, right? Like maybe it's, it's your good health and, and youthfulness that you're squandering in self-absorption instead of leveraging it for the God's kingdom. Maybe it's this season of being an empty nester. It's like, praise God, your kids are gone. The house is empty. And so now you want to enjoy that, but you don't give any time to having younger Christians over to disciple them to invest in them. What has God provided you with that you might need to think better about using to worship and glorify him with? What good provision might you take and see it be turned into an idol? You know why you shouldn't worship idols, friends? Because they aren't worthy of worship. <laughs> I mean, I know that's, that's, that's simple, right? Like, that's not profound, but really think about it. Nothing you can make for yourself or manipulate for yourself or control for yourself is worthy of worship. Do you really want a God that small? Emma reminded me this week of something that she'd heard before. She said, if your God can't fit into your own, if your God can fit into your own mind or into your own will, it's smaller than you are and it's not big enough to be your God. I mean, false gods aren't eternal. They've not stood the test of time. If you make an idol for yourself, then that idol got here after you got here. But God, Yahweh, the true God, he's been here since forever in the past and will be here to forever in the future. Idols are also flawed. They're created by imperfect creators and they therefore have imperfections themselves. But God, he's all perfect. Idols are, are, aren't omniscient. They're not omnipresent. They're, they're not omnipotent. But God... He knows all things. He's all places at all times, and he's got all power in his hands. So why are we worshiping anything other than him, friends? Like he alone is worthy of our worship. There ain't nothing in this world that competes nor compares to God. God alone should be the focus of our worship. He alone is worth the worship. And so his anger burned when Israel began focusing on idols. 
Verses seven and eight tell us that their idol worship would yield nothing. And then in verse nine, when, I, when the idols failed them, they turned to foreign nations. Funny enough, they turned to Assyria, which is the nation that would eventually turn on them and be the one to lead them into captivity. In verse 10, they're described as hiring lovers among these nations. They, they hired lovers to protect them and provide for them and, and to procreate with them. This was likely both physical and spiritual. Israel was intermingling with, with these nations, hoping that they would help them continue thriving and growing with all their newfound idols and comforts. But God says that they'll decrease in number because he is about to wipe all of that stuff out. And then in verse 12, we see that their claim of knowing God wasn't actually a legitimate claim of genuine knowledge. Because what does God say? He says if he were to write out 10,000 points of his instruction for them, they would regard them as something strange. So again, you can't know God without knowing the ways of God. And Israel was so distant from God's ways that they would find them strange if he were to write them out for them. I think this is similar to many in the church today finding things like sexual abstinence or modesty or tithing to the church or taking a Sabbath to rest from working or being exclusive about doctrinal beliefs. Many in the church today, unfortunately, find those things to be strange expectations from God. But if we're going to know him, we need to make sure that our knowledge of him includes knowing and obeying his ways as well. The knowledge of God saves, but it must be genuine. Because the people didn't know him and have forgotten him according to what verse 14 says, God makes it clear that he's going to destroy their idolatrous cities and all the means for their idol worship. And then in chapter nine, God rebukes Israel in a way that lays out another two-part lesson for us. It's simply this, prosperity brings joy, but it's short-lived apart from God. Prosperity brings joy, but it's short-lived apart from God. In verses one through three of chapter nine, God tells the people, do not rejoice jubilantly as the nations do, for you have acted promiscuously, leaving your God. You love the wages of a prostitute on every grain threshing floor. Threshing floor and wine vat will not sustain them, and the new wine will fill them. They will not stay in the land of the Lord. Instead, Ephraim will return to Egypt, and they will eat unclean food in Assyria. So what you have in those verses is God reminding his people that their joys should not resemble the world's joys. The world rejoices at prosperity simply because they love to prosper. But God's people rejoice at prosperity because we know that prosperity is actually provision from God. And it's a joy to have God care for us. It's a joy to, 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 to have God care for us. And we know that it's a joy that we can relish in for all of eternity. Like the blessings we experience in this life, they compare nothing to the abundance of blessing that await us in heaven. But if we aren't granted access into God's heavenly kingdom through Christ Jesus, then any blessing experienced on earth is a blessing that has an expiration date. The only way, friends, to enjoy eternal prosperity is through eternal worship of God. God says Israel was enjoying their prosperity, but they were like a prostitute. They saw their threshing floors full of grain, and they didn't care who it was that provided it for them as long as the provision was there. But this provision won't last or sustain them, God says in verse two. It will eventually run out and they, according to verse three, will be kicked out of the prosperous land of God. And then in verses four through six, we see God withhold a different kind of prosperity and provision. He says their offerings and sacrifices won't be made. Their bread won't make it to the temple to be offered and used in sacrificial worship of God. It will be like the bread of mourners, God says. 
They won't have anything to do on a festival day, no feasting in honor of the Lord. This is God telling Israel that he is even going to withhold religious practices from them. Like everything he lists in the verses that, uh, about worship and, 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 and sacrifice, those are good things for them to engage in. They were commanded to engage in those things earlier in the, in the Old Testament. But because they'd grown to be so religious in the wrong ways, and they'd grown so accustomed to making idolatrous sacrifices, God says, I'm putting you in a place that will bar you from engaging even in proper worship of me. He says, I'm not going to be one of your genies that you, you worship solely to get something. Your worship of me wouldn't be proper anyways, so I, I'm, going to allow, I'm going to allow you to be taken captive away from any form of worship, God says. And he says that you're going to see that you literally had nothing the moment you stopped worshiping me. Even if you try to flee from your captors, he says, you'll find yourself stuck. Your provision and prosperity will be gone. You have nowhere to go. It's the point that God is making. You have nothing outside of me, so you should have worshiped me all along. Friends, Israel's plight here in verse in chapter nine, it says to us who read about it, that any joyful prosperity apart from God is no joyful prosperity worth having. So you may be in a season where you're living your wildest dreams. All your earthly, hurt, earthly hopes and desires are met. I want to give you a loving reminder that those dreams, hopes, and fulfilled desires can easily be taken at the snap of a finger. And if you ain't got God when they're taken, you will be left like Israel with nothing, nothing at all. But if you do have God, then you've got a joy that will last you for all of eternity. So don't sacrifice the joys of every tomorrow that will ever come for the lesser joys of today. The Lord tells Israel in verse seven, that the days of punishment have come. They need to pay the consequences for their sin and they need to recognize that the day is among them. In the end of verse seven, he points out how they were failing to recognize it because they were calling Hosea a fool. This prophet who was sent by God was being referred to as one who was insane. He says, because of their iniquity and hostility, they couldn't see that Hosea was actually legit. And so they couldn't recognize that this prophecy about judgment was legit. He said that Israel but God makes it clear in verse eight that Hosea was actually a watchman who was sent by him. He says that Israel made it hard on Hosea and continued to trap him because they were as sinful as they were back in the day of Gibeah. That's a reference to, uh, to Judges 19, when one of the, the Levites turned a woman over uh, to, to the people of Gibeah and she was raped and, 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 and abused all night long, the text says. It's a heinous example of the most wretched kind of sin, And yet God says, this is where you've come to Israel. So in saying that, friends, God is communicating his disgust with them. He's communicated to them that they are so far gone, that, that, that he is, is repulsed by them in their state of sin. And he says that he will remember their iniquity and punish them for this sin. And now that statement, along with the rest of this chapter, it teaches us that punishment stings, but it may yield restoration. Punishment stings, but it may yield Restoration. That's our third two-part statement for the morning. Punishment stings, but it may yield restoration. Yesterday was my dad's birthday. And so it's only fitting that uh, while I was preparing this week, I recalled something from my childhood with him that helps me to illustrate this point. It's not the most fun memory for me to share. Y'all will see why when I tell the story. Um, but I was probably about five or six years old, maybe seven or eight years old. 
I just reached the point of being able to ride in the front seat, right? Like, that's, that's a big step. Like, I, my, my parents had decided that I was old enough, I was big enough to sit up front, I was riding shotgun. You can tell me anything about this. Obviously, it made me feel like a young stud, right? Like, I get to ride in the front seat right here with, next to my daddy. But apparently, I got a little too focused on the privilege that this was to the neglect of the responsibilities that it brought. I started running errands, just doing day-to-day stuff with my dad one day. We were hopping in and out of his truck at different places. And he had repeatedly said to me, when you get in the truck, the first thing you do is put your seatbelt on, especially now that you're riding in the front seat. Well, I apparently wasn't listening very well because he had to say it time and time again. He gave many reminders. And then he got to the point where he gave me a warning. He looked at me and he said, if I have to remind you to put that seatbelt on again, the next time we get in this truck, you're going to regret it. That's improper English, but that is proper for black parenting. <laughs> you're going to regret it, he said. Well, that next time came and I forgot to put my seatbelt on. We got into the truck and as we were pulling out of a parking lot, I started to have the thought, like, I, think, I think there's something that I'm forgetting to do. And I kid you not, as the thought started to materialize in my mind, there, there was a hand. And, and the hand reached across the center console and, and, and gave me a pop that helped me to remember what it was that I was forgetting to do. He told me I was going to regret it, and I did. But here's the thing. I'm an adult now. I got a son of my own. And yet it's still frequently the case that I'm in my truck, and when I reach for my seatbelt, I remember that popping that my dad gave to remind me that I always need to put my seatbelt on. It stung. It stung really bad, but the point remains that though punishment stings, it may end up serving you well in the long run. And like in the case of Israel, it may result in restoration. Why do I say that? Well, because the rest of chapter 9 tells of punishment from God that stung real bad. So God tells them of how this nation that would come and overtake them would spare no one. There's extremely harsh language in chapter 9 about babies being killed and, and, and mothers being made barren and miscarriages happening. All of this stuff, because they had become so sinful that God wouldn't allow them to bear more children, to teach their sinful ways, and perpetuate their idolatry. God is wiping the nation out completely, in entirety, down to the smallest of the nation. Or is he? You see, this statement in verse 9, he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins, that statement is used a couple of places in these chapters. And if the Bible were to end on a note like that, it'd be really sad for us, right? Like if that was it, that's the end of the story, like Andrew said this morning, if it was the end of the story that we confess sin, become aware of our sin, and God punishes for sin, us, us for sin, that'd be a really sad ending for us. But thankfully, it doesn't end there. That statement should sound like a familiar statement that tells of the opposite reality. See, after Hosea would make this prophecy and watch the people be taken captive, there would be another prophet to come later and make a different statement. Hosea made this statement as the people of God had abandoned and and, and were severing an old covenant of theirs. But Jeremiah would later come and and make a statement that would tell of a forthcoming new covenant. We looked at this a couple of months ago. Jeremiah 31, 34 says this. Look, the days are coming. 
This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, this one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. He prophesies and says, instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days of covenant breaking. This is me paraphrasing. And he goes on, he says, I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And then he ends with this. On behalf of God, Jeremiah makes this statement. I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. So friends, this this prophecy of punishment is one that stings. And it is one that, that was indeed experienced by the people of Hosea's day. But we know that some of them who experienced it would be sobered by it and, and hopefully begin to long for something better. They would long for forgiveness and redemption because they would see the dire consequences of their sinfulness. And because God is gracious, he's left promises like those of Jeremiah 31 to grant hope after the punishment like this in Hosea 9.9. And it wasn't an empty promise. Because while this may say that sin won't be forgotten, Jeremiah 31 tells us of a a future covenant where sin is both forgiven and forgotten. And then the one who this covenant promised would be established and built upon came and made it clear exactly how it would happen. Jesus came and during his time on earth, he declared that those who sought God the Father through him could experience forgiveness. Their sins could be wiped clean. So what Jesus told the paralytic who was on the stretcher, he says, I'll give you the ability to walk, but even better, I'll give you the forgiveness of your sins. What did he say about the woman who washed his feet with her hair in Simon's house? He says the reason she loved so much is because her many sins have been forgiven. What did John the Baptist say when he came preaching about a baptism in the name of Jesus? He said, this baptism ain't like those other baptisms. This baptism, he says, is for the forgiveness of sins. What did Jesus cry out on his persecutor's behalf when, when they hung him on the cross? He said, Father, forgive them even of this great sin. So friends, Jesus came so that forgiveness could be experienced. Y'all can be quiet if y'all want to. I'm gonna preach this thing to myself. Jesus came so the forgiveness could be experienced. And how was he able to do this? We saw it a few weeks ago, right? He was able to do it because the covenant Jeremiah foretold of, he came and instituted. It was in that upper room with his disciples when Jesus looked back to what Jeremiah had said a long time ago. He said, y'all remember that covenant that Jeremiah pointed to? Here it is. He said, this cup, it represents my blood that will be poured out to initiate and seal that covenant because my blood, my shed, spilled, and poured out blood will be shed, spilled, and poured out for the forgiveness of sin. And that's exactly what his blood has done for us. He went to a Roman cross. He bore a terrible punishment that he himself did not deserve. He was beaten and bludgeoned. He was mocked and spat on. He was pierced in his hands and hung on a cross, the worst kind of punishment in his day. Like it was a punishment, friends, that screamed, not only are you a sinful criminal, but you are the, the worst, you're, you're a worthless criminal. Like we want nothing to do with you. It, it, it came not only at your, your crimes that you committed, not only at your sin, but, but at your very existence, the Roman crucifixion did. And Jesus endured it. In spite of him being sinless and more worthy than any other man, Christ endured that punishment. He bore that punishment to the point of death. And then he bore the punishment of separation from God. And he bore the punishment of a burial in a tomb that he himself had molded and created. He bore that punishment, friends, for you and for me. And like, we can't even fathom how bad it must have stung. That was a punishment that stung like no other. But Jesus, friends, after bearing this punishment, he dealt a sting of his own. (laughs) It was in that tomb that breath filled his lungs again, that life filled his body. That strength was taken up in his hands, AP. That, that, that restoration was afforded to me and to you. And so again, I say this morning, friends, punishment stings, but it may yield restoration. 
And there ain't a greater example that we can see of that than the one that is seen in our Savior and what he did for us on the cross. Jesus took the sting of our punishment so that we, we, we sinners could be restored. He took the sting of our punishment so that Hosea 9.9 becomes Jeremiah 31 for us. And you know, this isn't all that Jesus brought for us. He also brings us righteousness. We're not even going to dig deep into chapter 10. We don't need to. Chapter 10 in Psalms repeats a lot of what we've already seen. Go read it on your own. The people of God were self-centered. They had poor leadership. They didn't even respond to the authority of that leadership. They were unkind and evil toward one another. They had this calf idol that God was going to destroy. But they too, as a people, would be destroyed along with their idols. And I mean, isn't this unkind of God to destroy them with their idols? Like the people, they, they, they cried out way back in verse two of chapter eight. Shouldn't that have been enough? Why do they also have to endure this punishment? Well, part of the reason is because of what we've already talked about. Their cry wasn't a sincere one. But another reason is because, don't miss this, Christ and the gospel doesn't always spare us from the consequences of our sin. He spares us from the punishment of our sin. Like, I wish I had time to, to kind of sit with that and unpack it like, like, like it is worthy of being unpacked. But what I'm essentially getting at is this. These people have placed themselves on a trajectory that they couldn't just step off of. They were going to experience this judgment as a consequence of their many years of waywardness. In the same way that that many people come to know Jesus and repent in prison, but still have to finish their prison sentence, these people are going to experience their sentence of judgment. But the hope is that the judgment, the punishment, will yield restoration, even in the form of having restored longing to worship God rightly. How do I know this is the hope? Because there's a call issued near the end of chapter 10. Look at chapter 10, verse 12. Sow righteousness for yourselves and reap faithful love. Break up your unplowed ground. It is time to seek the Lord until he comes and sends righteousness on you like rain. That's a call for the people to forsake sin and choose righteousness. And it's also where we see the other thing that Jesus brings. He not only brings us forgiveness, but he also gives us righteousness. You see, in this call of verse 12, there's a call to both sow and to seek. That's a good summary of the Christian life. We are people who sow righteousness as we can, but recognize that we must seek righteousness that we can't find within ourselves. And the place we find it is in Christ. God tells the people to sow righteousness, but to seek the Lord and anticipate him coming to send righteousness on them like rain. Well, the way he sends righteousness is through Jesus Christ. Before Christ ever went to the cross, he lived 33 years of perfection so that he could have a perfect life to offer in exchange in replacement of your imperfect life. And so I just want to echo the call that God gives in this verse. He says, it's time. It's time to sow righteousness and to seek the Lord for righteousness. He says, you've done enough sowing and seeking of other things. So give it up and turn to me. He's saying, everything you need, I have to offer you. And I want us to all leave knowing that today. If you're here sowing and seeking other things, I plead with you to stop. (laughs) Nothing you find will be sufficient. No other way works. So these that will be pleasing unto God and seek God to give you what you need so that what you seek to sow will be watered with rain and blossom into righteousness that is sufficient for your salvation. That is found in Christ and Christ alone. He is the one we're seeking for the righteousness that saves us into right, renewed relationship with God. Let's pray for God to help us sow and seek through Christ.
It is you, Lord. It's not us. Righteousness is necessary. And yet we don't have it within ourselves. So we're grateful that it's found in you. We give you thanks that forgiveness has been afforded in you. We give you thanks that, that, that you're a God who has looked at us with eyes of mercy, seen our incapabilities. And when we long in a proper way, when, 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 when it is a genuine knowledge of you that we desire, you grant it through Christ. So I pray for any heart and mind in the room this morning that is experiencing this longing, but not knowing where to turn, who to seek. God, would you reveal yourself to them? I pray for those of us that often forget where it is that we should be seeking, who it is we should be seeking. God, would you continue to reveal your glory and grace to us so that we as your people might be kept, so that we would experience not just the joy of seeking the soul righteousness for your glory, but the joy of seeing you sin righteousness like rain. <laughs> We're grateful that Christ has enough righteousness to offer it to us and all of us who desire to be righteous in your eyes. We can be made so because of him. So it's his name that we exalt this morning. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.